I'm not going to tell you too much about Bishop Philip because he's going to tell his story tonight. But this is how I'd like to introduce him. If you, um, as you read through the New Testament and you study, especially the writings of Paul and Peter, he talks about what leaders should be like. And you know, those of you who do the Greek, Episcopos and Presbyteros are the two words interchangeably used for the leaders. Now, here's a novel idea. In the New Testament days, and going right through to even the days of the Puritans in the Anglican Church, there was a concept that they believed that your spiritual leaders should be your examples. They should be people who led by example and that you would look up to your spiritual leaders and follow them because they would help you in your spiritual journey. What, a, what an interesting concept. <laughs> because that is not necessarily common today. It's really hard to know of all the spiritual leaders out there who you can really trust. But in the New Testament, in the days of the Puritans, if you were an Episcopos or a Presbyteros, a priest or a bishop, especially in the New Testament days, you were looked up to. People followed you. They trusted you because you were a reputable, reliable leader with integrity of spiritual truth and we could follow you. God knows that we need people to look up to, especially when life is a bit rough. Well, of course, that all went sideways over the years, the last 2,000 years, and Episcoposes and Presbyteroses went sideways. And I've often thought, you know, if we could take the Anglican system and, and the Holy Spirit could take control of it and we could have an Episcopal government, that was led by the Spirit, that could be really good. In fact, that's one of the things that drew me to Anglicanism. Not the stuff that John experienced. I didn't go through that stuff, but the idea that, my gosh, if we could have bishops who you could really trust and love and were men of integrity, wow, that would be something. Well, anyway, that's one of the reasons I joined the Anglican Mission. And... um, it's such a privilege in the middle of nowhere to have our um, apostolic vicar, Bishop Philip Jones. When I first saw it, Philip Jones AV, I thought, audiovisual. <laughs> no, apostolic vicar. And basically what that means, um, and he'll tell you his story, but what that basically means, in the Anglican mission in North America, including Canada, you know, we all have our licences from the church in Africa. But they have granted us to have an apostolic vicar, a bishop in charge of the whole mission. And under that bishop are two missionary bishops, Bishop Silas and Bishop Sandy Green. And they are roving bishops. They don't have diocesan boundaries. They're missionary bishops. They travel all over North America and all over the world doing missionary work under Bishop Philip. He's our apostolic vicar. He's your bishop and my bishop. And most of us would say, oh gosh, I don't like that idea. But let me tell you, if we could go back to that original idea of how bishops should have been, like what they were in the New Testament, where we could trust our spiritual leaders and they were examples to us, I believe that's a guy that we've got today here. And Silas and Bishop Sandy Green, men of integrity that we can trust. It's pretty rare, but when you've got them, you hang on to them. And so the way I would want to introduce our bishop, he's your bishop and he's my bishop, he's our episcopos, right? He's the guy that we go, he's not perfect, he'll tell you that. 
But he's a man of integrity and he's someone we can trust. And his credibility bank has got a lot of deposits in it. We can trust him. And so what we're going to pray for him and he's going to tell us his story. But what I'd love you to do is, this is his first time at sort of a Canadian Anglican mission thing. He, he's, he's just getting to learn who we are, us Canadians, he says with an Aussie accent, just to prove that this is a kingdom. Would you give him a Canadian, Port Alberni, Anglican Mission Canada, welcome. <laughs> Let let me pray for him as he comes and ministers to us. Father, we just thank you for Philip and for Claudia. Thank you for his ministry amongst us. Holy Spirit, would you use this man of integrity to speak to us tonight? And would you give us teachable spirits that we might hear your spirit and obey your spirit in Jesus' name? Amen. It's good to be here, eh? Okay, now... This is something the Lord just put on my heart, so just bear with me. But um, this is a holy place, right? Holy ground, right? What did Moses do when he stood on holy ground? Take your shoes off. Let's all take our shoes off right now. I know. Sneaky, sneaky, but that's okay. This is holy ground. The Lord just put this on my heart. And I thought, do I do this or not? I've never done I would never do this in Dallas. Um, but uh, before I kind of talk a little bit uh, about my favorite subject, me, um, <laughs> I want to hear what maybe God said to you this afternoon, either through uh, John's talk or the worship or the balloon popping thing or whatever. You don't have to say anything if you don't, but if there's something just real quickly, briefly, not a long story, but just something that the Lord might have said or laid upon your heart, it would encourage the rest of us as well. So is there anything? Just kind of raise your hand if there's something you heard the Lord say to you. Or something this afternoon um, during the worship. Yes. Just do it. it. Okay. Mr. Nike there. Just do it. The word needs to be made flesh in us. The word needs to be made flesh in us. Amen. Amen on that. Good. What else? Something you heard or something in your balloon that popped up. Yes, ma'am. Trust and obey. There's no other way. A poet and didn't know it. That's good. Great. Anything else? Thank you all. Okay. The word needs to be in flesh in us. Yes. Following Jesus does not always make sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I love that, John, when you said that. Let your feet go and your head will follow. I'm in control and I have a plan. Good. I'm God and you're not. That's good to know. It's a good thing to be reminded of. Good. Anything else? That's great. God is moving. His spirit is moving. I pray that his spirit will move as I just kind of share some with you um, about things. And, and uh, here's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to tell a bit about my story. And uh, then tomorrow morning, uh, whenever we get together in the morning, I'm going to talk a little bit about... Uh, um, Mission and freedom, and particularly about the Anglican mission of which you all are a part. We're all a part together, and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And then uh, tomorrow evening, I have another talk tomorrow evening, so I'll be with you over the next uh, 24 hours. Uh, so I'm really excited about that, and, and it's great to be here. 
Um, well, my name is Philip Jones, and uh, as you can tell, I'm not from uh, Vancouver, eh? <laughs> or Port Alberni, eh? <laughs> I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and home of the Dallas Cowboys and all that kind of thing, and, and uh, um, I grew up in the Episcopal Church. And I'm one of those people that can never really remember a time I didn't believe. I just really kind of always believed the stuff. Uh, didn't always understand it. I, my life certainly didn't always reflect it and all that. But, uh, uh, but I grew up in a very high church uh, in Dallas. Um, and then um, I didn't particularly have parents or a family that was encouraging about the faith. And we said grace and we went to church and we never talked about it. Um, I always wanted to play football. American football. And uh, so that was a big thing for me. In junior high and high school, um, I had the opportunity to get uh, to know through the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Maybe you haven't heard of that, but in the United States, that's a big thing. Maybe in Canada. Uh, but it's uh, uh, drawing athletes together and talk about the faith. And when your coach is doing that, it makes a pretty big impact. And then things like Young Life. Have you heard of Young Life? All right. So those kinds of things were where I was somewhat involved in both of those things. I wouldn't say I was a leader in them. I wouldn't say that I was totally sold out, but I was somewhat involved in all that. And the whole time, not the whole time, but some of the time, I was really thinking about God and about these kinds of things. Uh, but there were lots of other thoughts on my mind as well, which aren't, weren't always so good. And uh, But anyway, so I go all the way through high school, and then um, uh, then I go off to college. I went to a college called Swanee. It's in Tennessee, small liberal arts college. And uh, it's a college where I could go play football. And played lacrosse. And, but I remember when I went there, um, I really wanted something to grab me about the faith. And, uh, you know, I, I was immature in lots of ways, of course, as any freshman in college would be. And, and, um, uh, and so I was looking for that thing. There really wasn't much there. And the, the, the sad thing is the people who were excited about their faith, I couldn't really identify with them. They were more the hippie type people or whatever, and I didn't know. I, who knew what I was really thinking? Maybe I was looking for a reason not to get involved in faith. I don't know. But uh, I took some Bible courses and all that. Swan is an Episcopal college, and so uh, the way they present the faith, if they present it at all, is going to be somewhat skewed. Um, so I really learned more about God, or at least I, I thought more about God. I was an English major. So when you read Dante and Shakespeare and all these, you know, the studies you were talking about, John, that you do all these things, they really have some, some great benefit for me. I knew it wasn't everything I needed or anywhere near, but I, it was something uh, to kind of keep me grounded. Um, <clears throat> then I'm going through college. Uh, I'm thinking about the ministry. I don't know why. It's not like anyone encouraged me and said, I really think you ought to go in the ministry. Or no one said, boy, the way you live your life, you ought to be the preacher. <laughs> Believe me, no one was saying that. Uh, but, um, but it was just something that was there. And then um, I started dating a person who's now my wife. Her name is Claudia. She sends her greetings to you. She loves you. She wishes she could be here. We have seven kids, and we now have eight grandkids. And so uh, one of the kids and two of the grandkids are coming from Little Rock, Arkansas to Dallas, and they're there with her for the next few days, so that's why she couldn't be here. But I'm going to get her back up here because I'm having so much fun. I want her to receive this as well. And the fact that you ought to turn it out over these next two or three days uh, is just fantastic. It's so encouraging to me because I love doing what I'm doing. And uh, so, But we began to date my senior year in college. She was at the University of Texas at Austin, Texas. And I was in this small little school in Tennessee. 
And we met each other at a summer camp called Camp Longhorn, of all places. And uh, that's where we met. And then we started, but then we started dating our senior year in college. Um, and so actually, it was a few months before the senior year started, uh, we happened to be snow skiing and we met at the same place. We didn't know we were going to meet each other. And uh, we happened to run into each other. And as I tell people, it was all downhill after that. But, you know. <laughs> So anyway, our senior year, we're starting to, you know, do all these things. I'm still playing football and all that and, and uh, loving it. And she's coming up to visit. And, and, um, uh, and so when, when I knew that we were going to get married, I, I would talk to her about the faith. Not that I understood it all. And not that I was a fired up evangelical or anything like that. But, but I did believe. I did talk about some things. She also grew up in the Episcopal Church. Strong, moral person. Uh, who pretty much thought if you just do the right things and be nice and stay out of God's way, you'll be okay. In fact, there's this other guy, a friend of mine who grew up in Temple, Texas. He grew up in a church and basically he pretty much, this is a friend of ours, and he pretty much thought that God was always angry at him, so he just avoided eye contact. <laughs> just kind of keep your head low, right? And then, you know, dodge all those darts. Uh, but, uh, Claudia wasn't quite like that, but she just didn't know much. And I knew a little bit, but not that much, whatever. So we got married and, uh, uh, she's from a really small town of 2,500, uh, in Texas. Texas has lots of small towns. I'm sure Canada does too. And, uh, of course I'm from Dallas and everything. Her mother had grown up in Dallas, uh, at, real close to where I grew up. So the street wise, so it was kind of interesting. Anyway, so then, uh, <clears throat> I, I knew that, uh, uh, I knew I really wasn't really called into the ministry, particularly being married. I didn't have that strong enough faith about that. Um, I thought about going to Peace Corps. My dad said before my senior in college, son, you will not go to the Peace Corps. He had a good reason to say that because my grandfather at age 76 left his job and went to the Peace Corps in Pakistan in 1962. And my sister also went to the Peace Corps after college. She went to Ivory Coast. He went to Pakistan. So he had reason to be worried that I might go. And uh, but then when I knew I was going to get married or we loved each other, then that wasn't in the picture. So I grew up in a lawyer's family. My father was a lawyer. My brother's a lawyer. And uh, I tried to avoid that. Honestly, I thought I just don't. There's got to be something more exciting than that. But uh, because I couldn't think of anything else to do, I went on to law school. Um, in, um, in a place called Baylor Law School in Waco, Texas. And the reason I got in law school was because it started on a Monday. I had not been accepted. I was on the waiting list. And uh, the dean of the law school, this is a true story, the dean of the law school called me on a Saturday and said, well, some guy didn't show up for orientation. We have a spot for you and we start Monday morning. And I was living in Dallas. I, did, I had a job but not much of one. So I said, I'll be there. I hung up the phone and took off to Baylor Law School and uh, so I uh, went through law school. We got married right when I was in law school and uh, um, graduated. And then I stayed in Waco, Texas. It's a town of about 150,000. I practiced law. I was a trial lawyer and I practiced law there for about seven years. But uh, so we, we would go to church. That was important. But but it was not, you know, the faith wasn't taking us over. I would say that that if you look at it in kind of a. Um, sequence in my life, I was saved in the sense that I believed, but I wasn't surrendered. And I certainly hadn't been sent. Okay, so those are three key words for me, saved, surrendered, and sent. All right, so I'm out now, and I'm practicing law in Waco, Texas, and I'm loving it. It's great, great work, really loved it. And um, 
I'll never forget the summer of 1983, uh, the beginning of that summer. It was as if I knew something was going to change. I didn't know what, but I could tell. If you ever watched the movie Mary Poppins, okay, remember when the when the flag changes and the wind changes, and they know that something's going to happen. That's when she kind of comes in and on the umbrella and all that kind of stuff. I, that's kind of how I felt. I didn't know what, but uh, I just knew something was going to change. Anyway, so near the end of that summer, we met a couple. He was an Episcopal priest. Uh, and she was his wife, and we met them. Uh, Claudia and I were running the junior high youth group for the three Episcopal churches in Waco, and we loved it. We didn't know what we were doing, but we loved the kids. And when they're junior high kids, that those awkward ages, right, 13, 14, if they just know someone cares about them, that's, that's 90% of it right there. But uh, anyway, so we were, so we, and we had all the youth leaders together, and we were having a silent dinner. This is how God works. We were having a silent dinner. That means you don't talk, right? That's why it's called a silent dinner. Anyway, so uh, we're sitting there and it's a silent dinner. We're not talking. And this new priest and his wife are there for the first time. They just moved to Waco. He's an assistant at another church, not the one we're going to. And um, at the end of the dinner, remember, you couldn't talk, right? So it's not like we talked to them. But we both said we need to get to know them. There's something about them that they have that we need. Now, that was just the Lord. That was the Holy Spirit. At the time, I didn't know that. I just knew... Wow, here's a guy with a collar on. As we got to know them, I never had met a guy with a collar on who really talked about Jesus like he knew him, the Bible like it mattered, and the Holy Spirit like he was alive. I had never heard that. I never heard anything about the Holy Spirit. He was still the Holy Ghost, and that was kind of scary. So that, that, that's all. this is like 1983. Well, we get to know them, and we had this kind of friendship, evangelism, friendship, discipleship, and and we just, there's, there's something like they're, like they're eating a banquet. They're having a feast. And we're outside starving for the bread that they have. To the world, it looks like we had the banquet. Because we had the three kids and the two cars and the two-story house and the job as a lawyer and all that nice stuff. But inside there was a hunger for something greater. The great banquet itself. I can now put words to it, but back then I really couldn't. So we're just talking, kind of getting to know them and, and all that. And then they're, they're just, I mean, it's just discipleship, but uh, it's not ever the finger pointing. Every now and then there's some exhortation. Uh, he would hear certain words come out of my mouth, but, but those kinds of things. And, and I remember particularly one night when he really, cha- I don't know if he even knew that he was challenging me, but this is what he said. Quoting Luke 17, verse 21, where it says, if you're a follower of Christ, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you or is within you, however you want to say it. That wherever you go, Philip, if you say that you're a Christian, wherever you go, goes the kingdom of God. That hit me like a bucket of water. It woke me up. It called me to obedience. It wasn't finger wagging, it was wooing. And if you really are serious about following Christ, just know that the kingdom of God is within you. That's all he said. He didn't say, well, therefore you should this, this, and this, or you should not do this. this. He didn't need to say all that. But you get it? The kingdom of God, folks, is not a place. It's an environment of intimacy and similarity. Intimacy. With God in that relationship. Similarity in that you want to be like Christ. 
Uh, earlier, John quoted this afternoon uh, Ezekiel 36, or it might have been 25, but they both say the same thing, that God's going to take out that heart of stone and put a heart of flesh in you. I didn't know any of this at that time. I now have language for it. But he was going to take out that heart of stone and put a heart of flesh. And in that heart of flesh, he was going to uh, uh, put the Spirit of God in you so that you'll want to trust him. Think about when you were a teenager. You probably didn't trust your parents that much. You probably didn't want to obey them all the time. But at some point, maybe when you were 20 or 21 or out of college or whatever, at some point you, you maybe turned around and said, Well, my parents, I want, I want them to want to be with me. And I want to be with them. There comes a change over time. It's the same way in that relationship with God. He would talk about that. Wherever you go, goes the kingdom of God. Well, that just blew me away. Because in the church I grew up in, I never really heard about obedience. I never really heard about being in love with God. I never really heard about how much he delighted in me. Uh, it was just a different measure. Or maybe they said it and I just wasn't ready to hear it. So I don't want to put the blame on the church where I was. But nevertheless, that was kind of the situation. So that began our journey, our parallel journey together with God, with Jesus jumping off the pages of Scripture into our heart. The Bible really does matter. And the Holy Spirit part I'm kind of getting introduced to but don't really understand at all. He's talking about things like the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Sidetrack. This is 1983-84, right? In the 20th century, God did something, I think, almost unparalleled, maybe since the first century, but maybe there were a few others, but not that many. In this outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the 20th century uh, was absolutely unique almost and incredible. At the beginning of the 20th century, the largest denomination in America was the Catholic Church. It still is. I don't even know what the second largest denomination was, but I can tell you what it was at the end of the 20th century. It's the Assemblies of God slash Pentecostal slash Charismatic Churches. The second largest movement of denomination, if you want to call it that, in America. God did something in that century. In that century of all of the terrible wars and all the ethnic cleansing and all those kinds of things. At Topeka and then at at, uh, Azusa Street in California, all of a sudden people... Things are happening and miracles are happening. People are speaking in tongues. And, and it's all happening kind of on the fringe places or what we would call fringe. Actually, they're probably more mainline than us, right? And then all of a sudden in 1960, Dennis Bennett's on the cover of Time magazine. He's an Episcopal priest. And he confesses to his vestry in California that he speaks in tongues and is immediately fired and sent up to Seattle, Washington, where he has this great church, St. Luke's in Seattle. And, and then in, in 1962, I'm just telling you all this because it's really important. In 1962, Pope John XXIII called the Second Vatican Council. And this is what he said. He was an old man when he was made Pope. And by then he'd already been Pope four or five years, so he was older. And they kind of thought that maybe he's just a transition Pope, right? Uh, but but hmm, he wasn't. He said, that let a fresh wind blow through the church, he said. He called the uh, Second Ecumenical Council, or maybe the first one where all the, all the different denominations had representatives. That lasted three years as Vatican II. And uh, I'm not Catholic, but I just know all this stuff. And then in 1968, a woman named Patty Mansfield is on a retreat in Duquesne's, uh, in Pennsylvania, Duquesne's University. And she has this experience with God. She begins to speak in tongues. And next thing you know, this, this charismatic movement is going through the Episcopal Church and through the Catholic Church and through all these mainline denominations. And all of a sudden, the Spirit's kind of breaking out. Well, I didn't know all this stuff in 1983, 1984. All I knew was this couple had something that I didn't have and I wanted it. And it was a way of living life winsomely, lovingly, and truthfully. 
And there was something that just drew us to that. I was just snobby enough. It had to come from a priest with a collar. I just wasn't going to go to the Presbyterian church or a charismatic church, by God, or something else. I was going to do that. Anyway, so then a guy comes to town, a guy named Terry Fulham. You know Terry Fulham? Terry Fulham was a leader in, in, uh, in the renewal movement in, in the Episcopal Church and, and taught, spoke all over the world. He comes to Waco, Texas. You know, this guy taught in New York and he had a church up in Darien, Connecticut called St. Paul's. He comes, he gets invited to come to Waco. He, I've never been to a conference or to a teaching or spent two or three days. And so we, and we meet at the Masonic Temple. <laughs> I didn't know anything about that stuff, but what Mark Brown, the priest's name, what he had us do, he said, listen, Philip, go up with me on Sunday. It was going to start Sunday night, and we're going to anoint the doors with the blood of Christ or something like that. And I've never done that. And and uh, because this guy's going to talk tonight, I said, we're going to do what? And, and well, it's a Masonic temple and blah, 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 whatever. So we go around all the doors, we do all that, and then he begins to speak that night, and and then uh, um, a guy named Terry Fulham, just, I've never seen this in my life. He gets up there, he's a big man, smart man, uh, articulate man, and, and, and he's got his collar on and the suit with a collar and all that, and he's, he's got this floppy Bible like a Baptist, but he's an Episcopal priest. And, and he's over there and he's just, you know, flipping, you hear the pages, you know, kind of the Bible, and oh, it sounds so cool, because I've never done that. And, and he's doing all that, and then he's, then he's leading us in music and songs. He goes over to the piano, and we're starting to sing all, I just call them Amy Grant songs, but I don't know what they were. They were little songs, you know, in his time and all that stuff. And, and, um, and then every now and then a hymn, and he would teach us this hymn, and he'd get back up and preach and teach some more. Fascinating. Never heard this kind of stuff. And then, um, uh, and the, the conference didn't really have a title, so I didn't really know what it was about. But his last talk was on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, and I remember when he began talking about that. And, and you know, it's right there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's, there's, it's all right there. You don't have the birth narrative in all four Gospels. Uh, you, but you got the baptism of the Holy Spirit in all four Gospels. And as well as Acts and, and other places. But anyway, so he kind of went through this thing. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and all. Well, Claude and I, we wanted everything. I mean, if you could have showed us you're supposed to stand on your head and count BBs, we'd have done that. We didn't really, there's about 200 people there. And so, um, this is the first time we'd ever walked the aisle. Because after his presentation, he said, he just made it real low key. He said, listen, if you want, if you want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, uh, come forward and the rest of you, you know, just, you can leave or you can stay and just sing along or whatever or pray for them. So we walked up there and, I mean, it's the first time ever we had, Made that kind of public declaration of, a, of, a, of, of something. I mean, we took communion all the time, but so did everybody else. That didn't count. And anyway, so we walk up there, and there's about 20 of us, and he just prays over us all at once. He doesn't do this individual thing. Didn't turn the lights out. Didn't have smoky stuff coming out. It was just, it was just so natural. And he prayed and said, I forgot all what he said, but, but uh, uh, you know, he said, you know, if you get a word or get a phrase or something, just feel free to speak it out. And so. I said a word, and Claudia said a word, and this poor friend of ours, Bob, he kept his mouth open. Nothing came out. His mouth was open for the next, like, two weeks, and nothing came out. <laughs> Finally, something came out, I think, but it just took a while for old Bob. But, um, so, it would go off, and, and I can't say, you know, we, we didn't fall on the ground, and I, we didn't levitate, and, you know, we're, anything like that, but, but it was just an act of obedience, and just saying, okay, this is kind of, 
begin with this thing. And, and at first I thought it wasn't anything, but then some wiser people told me, you know, just kind of take that language as he gives it to you and then move like a, like a new language. Well, then that begins a process in my heart where I could hear God kind of knocking. All of a sudden my mind's going back to college days and the thought about ministry. And all of a sudden, because at this point, saved and surrendered or surrendering more and more. And now I'm hearing that knock on my heart about going into the ministry and going to seminary. At that point, we had three kids. And uh, I kind of brought it up to Claudia, but not in a very good way. Well, okay, since you ask, we were going, we were going out to dinner with some other couples. And I hadn't said a word about it. And then at dinner, in front of these other people, I just said, what do you think about the possibility of, you know, fill in the blank. And uh, she just kind of, her eyes went like that. And, and uh, uh, you know, I kind of got the answer. And I got more later. But, but the, the, that was... That was like the spring of 1985, I think. And so that's okay. I was fine. Now, I want you to hear this. This is the way God worked with me. It may do it different with you. I, I said, that's fine. I'll be a late person the rest of my life. I'll make good money as a lawyer. I'll give at least 10% gladly because I was so into tithing, so into stewardship. And uh, that's okay. And I never said another word. I didn't pray about it. I just gave it up. And it was that clear and that simple. And then that was like in the spring of 85. In the fall of 85, I was made partner in the law firm, right? I've been there seven years, I think. And so uh, everything was set for me. I come home in January or February of 1986. And I hadn't said a word about anything. Wasn't praying about it. Just kind of gave it up. She began, uh, or Mark Brown was the priest's name that meant so much to us. He's now an Anglican priest in Richmond, Virginia. His wife's name is Yoli. We had nothing in common with them. He was an old hippie uh, at Woodstock and all that, been into drugs and everything else and, you know, got out of that. Uh, and and uh, she was a middle-class Hispanic person from Austin. We had nothing in common with them except they had something we wanted. So we developed this great relationship. And uh, she had been talking to Claudia that day. I came home, uh, minding my own business in February of 1986, uh, made partner three months before. And Claudia said, I think we're supposed to go to seminary. I think we're supposed to be there by August. And and um, I said, are you sure? Because I never would have done this uh, if I didn't have 100 percent you know, agreement with her. We had three kids and the whole bit. And she said, no, I think I, I, I'm 100 percent in. Well, for me, it was like coming out of the closet, which means other things to other people. But in that in that in that case, it meant that. And and so we began the process. Now, we only had, and, and we met with a bishop, like an assistant bishop. He said, there's no way you can be there by, by August. I said, well, can we at least knock on the doors and interview with the committees and all this kind of stuff? And so um, uh, meanwhile, we're still just growing in our faith and and this whole thing in front of us. And it's all scary. We don't want to tell anybody. And we begin to count the process, and they send you to a psychologist. It's part of the deal to make sure you're not crazy, right? And, I mean, we were crazy as all get out. But, uh, and you take this MMPI, is that the name of it? You all familiar? It's a, I don't know, you answer a bunch of questions. And, and two of the questions were these questions, I'll never forget. One question was this, when you go into a room, do people talk about you? <laughs> Well, I said, yes. I mean, because, I mean, I, I'm, I'm leaving the law practice. I'm going to go to seminary. It's kind of, yeah, people are kind of talking around Waco. It's a small town. Everybody knows the thing. And when, here's the other one. When you go into a room, do you see things other people don't see? <laughs> well, yeah, I've got discernment. I can see things other people don't see. And so when we, 
we, we paid 500 bucks for this damn test. And I'm answering these questions as honestly as I can. And the, um, uh, so I go into with the interview with the psychologist and he looks at me and goes, you're not what I expected. <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, the way, I said, we were talking about like pink elephants. Do you see pink elephants and, and do people, do you hear voices, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> We kind of got that straightened out. But anyway, so you go through all these, you got to go through all these hoops and whatever. And, uh, and sure enough, uh, in June, Bishop Benitez, uh, the Episcopal great guy, uh, Bishop in Texas, uh, passed us to go to seminary. And, and in August, sure enough, we were on the steps of Virginia Theological Seminary with three kids, just left the practice of law, just left everything behind us in Texas. And we're at the Virginia for three years. And um, uh, scared, excited overwhelmed, uh, but with great hope and expectation. And I was so blessed because by then I was 32, and I knew enough not to trust everything they throw at you, where had I gone right after college, I would have just trusted everything they threw at you and been confused the rest of my life. Uh, but, but I knew enough not to trust everything. But there were some great, big, evangelical, charismatic, Episcopal churches like Truro, Falls Church, Church of the Apostles, All Saints in Dale City. These are places in near Alexander, Washington, D.C. area. That's in the United States. That's, that's your neighbors to the south. Anyway, so, but, so it, was, it was great training for me. And, and then the best thing that happened to me, I have to be honest, was uh, we, we could take courses from other, from other seminaries, because there were so many of them. And I heard about this guy named Francis Martin. He's a Roman Catholic priest. A biblical scholar, and uh, but I heard he said things that you're just never going to hear <laughs> in an Episcopal seminary or anywhere else. And the teaching he taught scripture, and so I took him, and uh, and I remember the first thing he said in the first class I took him. Uh, there's this thing called the historical critical approach to scripture, and it's kind of a pseudo scientific way of trying to understand did. did did Jesus really say these words or what do these words really mean? And some of it's good and some of it's kind of screwy. But nevertheless, what came out of his mouth was, listen, the historical critical approach would tell you what the text says, but it won't tell you who the text is about. That you have to find out through prayer. I said, I'm going to take this guy for everything he teaches because he's got it. And I did. And I didn't know, but he was a leader in the Catholic charismatic renewal and a leader in the ecumenical renewal. He signed a document with J.I. Packer uh, and Bill Bright called the ECT, Evangelicals and Catholics Together. This was after I was out of seminary. And so God just, you know, putting all these great influences in my life, Mark Brown, Yoli Brown, Francis Martin. So seminary was a great experience for me. Here's what I learned in his classes. I left every single class I ever took, every time I took a class. By the end of my third year, I was taking 40 people to drive all the way across D.C. to go hear this guy and take his class. And uh, but here's I, I would always come home and tell Claudia, so Claudia, what I heard today, I realize what a sinner I am. I'm so convicted of my sin. At the same time, I'm so hopeful about the God, way God is going to change my life, because that's what I was hearing in this guy's class. He would talk about abortion. He would, this is 1986, 87, 88. He would talk about homosexuality. Uh, he would talk about uh, uh, this, not the sin nature, but just well, the sin nature, but just how we get caught up in ourselves and what God uh, and, and what Jesus was saying about that and the power of the cross that changed our lives. I wasn't hearing that in seminary. It, it was all dry and, and dusty and historical. And I love church history. There's nothing wrong with that. But I mean, could somebody please speak to this, please? And he did. 
And it was a powerful, powerful time. He's still alive and still close to him. But nevertheless, so I come out of seminary and I go back to, here's where things get kind of, I'm going to tell you about a bunch of different places I've lived. I go back to Waco, Texas, right, where I'd been a lawyer. Now, when I left Waco, I was on the top of the food chain. You got it? Pretty much, anyway, right? When I came back, I was at the bottom of that food chain, right? Because, you know, the salary's not big. You're living in a rented house that the church rents for you and all that. And I'm going back to this church that I had learned nothing at. And uh, uh, I actually had left that church to go to Mark's church. And then it was Mark's church that sent me to seminary. And then the bishop sends me back to the church I left. And the reason I left it because it was dry and dusty and nothing. And so I'm there for two years. But why would the Lord, he could have sent me to Houston, Austin. That would have been fun. Y'all don't know Texas, but Austin, Texas is a lot of fun. They have a sticker that says, keep Austin weird. That, that's Austin, Texas. <laughs> All right. So uh, any other places I could have gone. But he put me back there. Why? To form me. And this is what I heard the Lord say to me. I could have gone to Austin, Houston, anywhere else. And there I could have just been... Well, you know, here I am. I'm the new guy and all that. And they like me or not like me. And I could just preach and teach. But going back to Waco, Texas, the reason I think that he sent me there, kind of what I sense in my spirit, is he was saying to me, Philip, I don't, I don't want you sitting on the fence and just being nice to everybody. You need to preach what, what, what you've been hearing, what you've been told. And if people turn away from you that were your friends earlier, that's okay. You've got to find out who you really are to get off the fence. I mean, I never thought I was on the fence, but I guess God did. So, uh, so he puts me in that place, and I have to decide, am I just going to kind of mail in to the milieu of the Episcopal Church and just kind of be blah? Or am I going to have some flavor? Am I going to stay open to the Holy Spirit? Am I going to teach and preach about speaking in tongues and the Holy Spirit and those kinds of things? Open up all the supernatural realms of our life. And I stayed with that ladder, and, and a lot of people didn't like it. But nevertheless, I was there for two years, and then we had, no, do we have any other? Yeah, we had four kids by then. Then God sends me to a place called Marshall, Texas. That's deep East Texas. Very racially motivated. I've really had some racial issues, black and white racial issues. And I was there for seven years. We had three more kids while we were there. I was, kind of, I was the senior pastor or the rector of the church, small town, 25,000, Episcopal Church there. And Episcopal church, it was growing, and that was great. And I was kind of learning things. And, but it was, we had dead animals left on the front step. I mean, people weren't real happy with us sometimes. And so they threw dead animals in our car. I mean, I never heard of this stuff. But uh, um, it was pretty, pretty scary at times. But, so we're there for seven years, seven long years. And then um, I get a call to go to El Paso, Texas. Now, i got to ask you, has anyone here ever been to El Paso, Texas? You have? They don't have any oil out there. Why are you in El Paso? You were a kid. Okay, good enough. El Paso, Texas is that furthest western spot on the map of Texas, right? You know the map of Texas? All right, the furthest western spot is almost in Mexico. That's where El Paso is. Now, most people don't grow up in Dallas, Texas. Thinking someday I get to live in El Paso. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. But that's where God sent us. We were there for seven years. Seven of the best years of our life. That's where all of a sudden everything who I was, this kind of three streams, the spirit, the scriptures, the sacramental or liturgical life, all of it coming together. And the way that they, as a downtown old Episcopal church, but they had been a spirit-filled church. They would heard a lot about the Holy Spirit, been taught a lot about the Holy Spirit. It makes a huge difference. El Paso, 80% Hispanic. 
a very strong family town, no racism, none. They all get along because Hispanics and, and they all get along out there. And it was a different context, of course. But I was there for seven years. Loved it. Church was growing. We were growing. Um, so remember, saved, surrendered. Met Mark and Yoli, began to grow in the faith, baptized in the Holy Spirit, all that kind of stuff. Then sent. We became sent people. So to be sent people doesn't mean you have to be ordained. It doesn't mean that you have to go into full-time ministry. But that was the case for us or for me. So all that's happening. We're in El Paso. Loving it. Just absolutely loving it. Had a great bishop, a guy named Terrence Kelshaw. Anybody ever heard of him, Bishop Kelshaw? Some of you, yeah, you know him. Great man, strong evangelical from England. And just a, a fighter. I mean, he was a bulldog of a guy. You know, he'd just soon fight you, look at you if you were a liberal. And uh, uh, <laughs> it was great to have him on our side. <laughs> anyway, so things are going great there. Then um, um, I'm hearing about the Anglican Mission in America. I know people in it. Um, and uh, so I hear about it, and I'm really kind of rooting for them, you know, from where I am. And then the leader of it was a guy named Chuck Murphy. And I invited Chuck to come out to El Paso because I really liked him a lot. I said, Chuck, come out here. I just wanted to meet you more and introduce you to my church. You've just become this new bishop and this new thing called the AMIA. And uh, I want you to come out and, uh, uh, and see what we're doing out here and whatever. And so he came out and he talked about what he was doing. Led a Sunday school class. It was fantastic. And uh, that was all I had in mind, nothing else besides that. About a year later, he calls me and he says, Philip, I need that. This was March of 2005. I'll never forget it. Uh, and he said, would you consider moving to Little Rock, Arkansas and take over St. Andrew's Church? It's the first church in the AMIA called St. Andrew's. T.J. Johnston, some of you may have heard or met him or know of him. He was a bishop in the AMIA, and he had helped plant that. He did plant that church in 1998. He was there for seven years, and he was going to move back to South Carolina to plant another church. And, I, and, and so Chuck asked me, and, and uh, I said, oh, Chuck, I, I'm real, you know, this church is going great. He goes, well, I know, but I just want you to think about it. This is in March. He said, he's not, he may be leaving. We don't know for sure. But if he leaves, it won't be till May. I said, well, well let's just, well, don't worry about it till May. And, and uh, I told Claudia about it. And Claudia said, you need to think about this. You need to really listen because I already think God may be doing something. I said, Claudia, we love El Paso. We love this church. They're great to us. It's growing, all that kind of stuff. I know. But who do you love most? Do you love God? Do you want to go with God? I hate it when she asks those kind of questions, but she does all that stuff. So at the end of May, sure enough, you know, they called and yeah, TJ's leaving, going to go back to South Carolina. And we knew the people that had started the church, the lay people. We, we just had gotten to know them. And, uh, so I knew they were great people. They came out to El Paso. They interviewed us, whatever. The long and short of it is we did take the job. And so we moved out to Little Rock in, in the summer of 2005. Tears all along the way. I hate leaving places. Um, I really do. And, and you, know, you just put so much of your life and relational energy in there and all those kinds of things. So we'll go out to, El Paso, um, to Little Rock, Arkansas. And i got to tell you, I was in a different world. My gosh, I've been in El Paso. Average rainfall is five inches a year. Nothing green. You go to Little Rock, Arkansas. It's in the foothills of the mountains. It rains 50. It's like here, 50 inches a year. Everything's green. And... But I, I don't know where I am. I had dislocation anxiety or something. I'd get in my car at lunch and just drive around and say, Lord, where am I? Why am I here? 
I mean, I left this beautiful cathedral church and we're meeting in a school, you know. I mean, it's kind of like this, I guess, and and whatever. But, but you know, it was all, I knew God had called, so all that was going fine. And, um, and TJ had done a good job of building that, that church. And, and so I'm just getting there. And the one thing I knew they needed was this, and this is a good pastoral deal. They needed somebody to stay and just pay attention to them. Because TJ was gone a lot. In those early days, you know, when you had to fly around and do all the ordinations and just do a lot of stuff as this thing was getting off the ground, he wasn't always there a lot. And so I thought, you know, I'm a sim- in my heart, I'm a simple parish priest. That's what I love doing. Talking, teaching, sharing, relating, encouraging, all that kind of thing. So I'm just doing that and, and people are responding. The church is growing. We, they had already raised money before I got there to build a new, a new church or their own new building. And they, we did that while I was there. And then at some point, Chuck called me again. I got to quit answering the phone because every time something happens. And he said, you know, would you consider being a bishop? I said, well, how, how low is the bar? If you're asking me, I'm real happy where I am. I don't, I don't aspire for that and all that. And, uh, well, you know, this and that and this and that. So 2008, I was consecrated a bishop. And then, um, so that kind of adds to my duties a bit. Uh, but I'm still the senior pastor of the church. That's the way it is in the mission. This is why you can really trust the mission. Because just like Silas, you're the senior pastor of a church. And you're a bishop. And and so it keeps you grounded. You don't end up being in some kind of ivory tower or some kind of office doing administrative work and pushing papers around and calling meetings and don't do anything. So when I moved to Little Rock and this and this Anchor Mission deal, here's what I learned and discovered. When you meet, it doesn't have to be voting and politics and synods and whatever else y'all have, whatever else they had. You meet in this Bible study, prayer and worship and sharing best practices about things that are going on in your church. And, and, and it's just uh, it's wide open. It's open field running. It's just open. I was an offensive lineman. When I played football. And my favorite thing to do was to make a block and watch the running back just take off. I love that. A, because I couldn't be a running back, so I went fast enough. So it was good to see someone else do it. And I had something to do with that. That's what it was like in Anglican Commission. It still is. Frontline freedom we talk about now. Open field running. Take off and, and, and be sent people and apostolic and try things. Not everything's going to work. And I love the way Chuck led the mission. Archbishop Young, of course, was... Uh, one of the uh, original archbishops uh, after Tay in Southeast Asia, and then Archbishop Colini, and we had those two guys, the strong, faithful, stalwart people. And um, so it was just fantastic, and and it, the mission was growing, and, and, you know, there was the Episcopal Church and the mission. That was about it. There really wasn't much of an alternative. And um, so when I came in 2005, I'm just there doing my thing. Then he asked me to be a bishop, and... So I do all that, and uh, uh, and then we're helping to form what became ACNA, A-C-N-A, Anglican Church of North America. It's kind of a provincial model, much like the Canadian Church or much like the Episcopal Church, but it's more obviously orthodox. And so, um, so we're helping to get formed. We give them money, but we want to stay this kind of society or this kind of order. Think Franciscans or Benedictines or Dominicans or something like in the Catholic Church. That's planting churches and is lightweight and low maintenance and just kind of spinning things off. And if churches we plant want to go into acting, that's great. Uh, but, but, or if they want to plant other churches and stay in the mission, that we, we love that. That's what we're about. So, uh, then in 2010, 
I get another phone call. Now, I told you I got to quit answering the phone because it always, just don't y'all call me. But this guy, there was a church plant up that people wanted to plant a church in Dallas. Right near Dallas. How many of you have been to Dallas? Raise your hand. Some of you have been there? Okay. All right. So uh, there's Dallas. And I grew up in Dallas. I grew up in a part of Dallas called Highland Park. Park City. It's just pretty kind of a posh, leafy area. Leafy, whatever. And uh, uh, so I knew Dallas because I'd grown up in there. But I hadn't lived there. Didn't want to go back to Dallas. Had no reason to go back to Dallas. I had a lot of friends in Dallas. But I knew Dallas. I just didn't want any part of Dallas. Anyway, there's a group of 15 people that want to plant a church right there near downtown Dallas. Right there, kind of in the outside of the Park City's area, close to it. And I was going to be their bishop. So I'm praying for a church planter for them. Lord, please raise up a church planter for this group in Dallas that they would want to get around and they, and they could plant this church and get this thing going. Then I get a phone call from one of the people uh, on that group. Half of them I grew up with. It just so happened that way. She called me and she said, Philip, I know this is strange and I know I'm kind of going outside the system. But is there any way you would consider moving to Dallas and planting this church? You and Claudia know a lot of people here. And I remember there was a voice in my head that said, hang up and run far away (laughs) or else. And uh, I didn't have the guts to hang up because I've known her since I was in junior high. And uh, her her husband, I've known since I was four years old. I was kind of scared of him. So I just... uh, (laughs) Well, Susan, you know, I got this great deal here in Little Rock. I'm Bishop. It's a great church. We just built this new building and blah, blah, blah. And I said, I know, I know, but just just think about it. So, of course, I go back and tell Claudia about it. (laughs) Why did I do that? Well, I had to do that because she's going to hear about it somehow. So she said, oh, well, I think you need to think about this. My same thing I've heard, you know, back in El Paso and whatever. And so I said, oh, whatever. And um, anyway, the long, the longer and short of it was, uh, and it, it was, it was, there was some tugging back and forth and everything. But um, at the end of the day, I, I, I felt that God was was really in this. I'd only been in Little Rock five years, so I want you, I want you to hear something. The number seven. Okay, I had seven kids. I was in Marshall, Texas, seven years. El Paso, seven years. I was born on the seventh. Up until last week, I had only seven grandkids. And now I got eight. But anyway, so seven's kind of been a big number. I practiced law for seven years. In Little Rock, I was only there five years, so that kind of screws all that up. But, 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 so I've never planted a church. I go back to, so we say yes, and oh, this is terrible. Uh, leaving again. I told you, I hate to leave places. You know, I'd already cried leaving Little Rock. I finally got over leaving El Paso on me. Now I'm leaving Little Rock. Not only that, I'm leaving three daughters behind who came to Little Rock because we were there. And got married. Oh, did you hear all the women? Oh. And, but it's true. But it's true. I know. I got five daughters. I know women. I know how you think. So there were three of them there. And, and, and now they're all married. And they got kids and everything. Um, some of them had kids. Then got married. But nevertheless, they got married. And so, uh, but, but we, you know, leaving my three daughters, my three oldest daughters, Larry, Cohen, and Emmy. And that was tough. And, and now that we look back, we say, thank you, Lord. Because they got kids. And there are grandkids, and that's great, but we're now in Dallas. So we get to see them when we want to see them, right? And so Claudia doesn't have to see them all the time and to kind of raise them up. So anyway, I go to Dallas, and and I'm having an identity crisis in Dallas. It's like, remember I went to Little Rock, and I started driving. In Dallas, it was the same kind of thing because I'm back home. And, and 
I, I loved home, but I didn't really want to be home. And then in that area, there's this lot of performance expectations. You know, Dallas is, everything's big in Dallas, right? You know, they got big bucks. They got the Cowboys, big stadium. The women have big hair. I mean, it's just everything. Everybody's got a big goals, big buildings, big bucks, big this, big that. And so, uh, and, and there was a lot of what I call image management. You know what that means? You know, I'm going to manage. Okay, on the outside, I can show, I can be, you know, look at the right thing. But on the inside, you know, I'm a mess and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of captured onto that pretty early on in my preaching and teaching. And, and uh, so I come to Dallas with this three streams, spirit, scripture, sacrament, um, uh, Bible teaching, Christ-centered, spirit-filled liturgical church. It's a niche. It shouldn't be, but it's a niche. There aren't many people doing that. They, they understand liturgical churches. They understand liturgical churches that may preach Christ. They understand charismatic churches that aren't liturgical. Or Bible churches that aren't liturgical or spirit-filled. <laughs> uh, but to put all this together would seem to be part of my DNA. I, I, I'm Anglican because I'm a Christian. I'm not a Christian because I'm Anglican. Anglican is an adjective, not a noun for me. But it's a beautiful adjective because it, 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 I love it. it. We're connected historically with something that's bigger than us. It's not just an independent church that just pops up and, and you know, it, Pastor Bob runs everything and everybody loves Pastor Bob and, and or whatever. It, or you build your own king. It's not that kind of thing. There, there's, there's some structure and antiquity and historical connection to it. And, and yet the, the Holy Spirit in Dallas, I got to tell you, in da- I don't know about this area, but in Dallas, they don't talk about the Holy Spirit much. They're starting to do more now since I got there. But, but if, honestly, they are. I don't know why. But, but there's a big seminary there called DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary. And these guys have been preaching and teaching for like 70 years that all those gifts stopped. Right? Right. They stopped some year, some who knows, someday, I guess, October 3rd, the year 433, they stop. I don't know. But yeah, that was kind of their thinking. And uh, that just wasn't true, <laughs> biblically or true experientially or whatever else. But, so, so, but what that did, all the, all the people that were kind of in it, what's this new church? As soon as they talked about the Holy Spirit, within some of them left, and that was good. Because, uh, but the team that I was starting the church with, 17 people, they knew what I was about. And, and, but there's a balance to it. And I'll tell you about this balance of these three streams. The balance is, uh, you have the spirit, scripture, sacrament. Now let me tell you what. If a church is all about the scripture, you were talking about this this afternoon, it gets kind of heady and, and legalistic and, you know, here's the book and believe the book. That's not, that's not what the book is about. But if it gets, if it's all about scripture, that's what it gets about. If it's all about the sacraments, it gets kind of fussy. You know, well, you got to do it this way, and you got to do it this way, and you know, you got to hold your finger this way, or whatever like that. If it's all about the spirit, it gets kind of loony, right? I mean, you know, and it's, it, there's not that balance to it. And you bring all those three together, and there's a balance to it. I'm all for loony things, but that's that's not the end. That's a means to an end. The Bible is not the end. You said that today. It's a means to an end. The Bible is like a chalice that contains the Word of God. Not the written word, but the living word of God. The written word is living too, but Christ. You get it. It's like a chalice. Anyway, all this, so I'm, I'm plant, starting this thing and, and, you know, we're meeting with people right and left, inviting people right and left and whatever. Our opening service, we had 240 people. I mean, just, you know, a lot of them were, you know, 
grandmothers and aunts and uncles that would never come back and all that. But but uh, a few dogs and cats. But but it was all there. And and then and then, uh, you know, over time, that kind of we went once a month for four months. And then we started going weekly on Sunday evenings and meeting at this church, at this other church on Sunday evenings, because we didn't have a Sunday morning place to meet. The church obviously wasn't going to do Sunday mornings. So then in December of 2011, it'll be what, three years this December, we opened up on a Sunday morning, not at a church building. We we're renting an office space. And and the, the, but it used to be now this is hilarious. It used to be a music store. When I grew up, we, we knew the name of this music store. And the bottom, the, the the ground floor is a big performance hall, high ceilings like this. So that kind of worked out. It does have a couple of columns. We kind of kind of work around that. But nevertheless, and so um, uh, it was a music store, or had been, but big performance place. Well, before we bought it, it had been a Buddhist. Temple type thing for two or three years. So we had to kind of go in there, do a little cleansing and get all that out of there. And, and, and so then we brought in these pews, used pews, used pews from a funeral home. You were talking about that when you said that today. So we brought used pews from a funeral home, right? Death, death, death. And then some other used pews from a dying Episcopal church, right? Death, death, death. And so we put them in there, and, and that's it. And, we're, and then we built a little altar rail and all this kind of stuff. And it's real simple. It's right there in the gay area of Dallas. You can't get more gay than where, you know, I guess this coming out of the closet thing came back to haunt me. <laughs> but anyway, it's right there. And I mean, it's big gay. And uh, it's right there near downtown. And, and But the Lord had told me, he said, this is, uh, he showed me the uh, outline, the, the skyline of Dallas. said, this is your mission field. It's right as opposed to going way out in the suburbs or something like that. So we opened up in December of 2011. And meanwhile, as we're going through all this, the, the AMA is kind of going through a hiccup with, with the ACNA thing and the Rwanda deal. And I don't know how much you all know about all that. But but it was just a few little hiccups there that were happening. And and so it was just a um, a lot going on throughout all that time. But but we've gotten over that. And and everything's good now with all that. And, and the church is doing well and growing and all those kinds of things. Um, so it is now 2014, October 2014. And uh, um, we, we we have really good attendance and we have a good staff. And then along the way, Chuck called me on the phone. Shouldn't have answered. She called me on the phone. Said, Would you consider being apostolic vicar of this thing? Uh, of course, the College of Consultors, which is Archbishop Young and some other archbishops, they're in charge of that. But uh, but you know they'll they'll probably listen to me. And what do you think? And oh, Chuck, you know uh, you know I, I said think about it, pray about it, whatever. Anyway, all that kind of came. Uh, so in January, I was installed as the Apostolic Vicar, which is like the um, CEO, I guess, if you will, of of the AMA. And um, and then uh, over the last six months. Over the last year, I've been on this what I call the Goodwill tour. I mean, really, I've, I've been I've been to Chattanooga, I've been to Atlanta, I've been to Florida, I've been to Little Rock, I've been to San Antonio, now Vancouver, Colorado. So this is my Goodwill tour, saying, "Here I am." <laughs> and uh, uh, it's I was telling Peter, somebody else today, you know, I'm, I'll be 61 next week, October 7th. That's my birthday. It's on the 7th. Number seven's all over the place. And so uh, that it's uh, it's constant. There, there's really never a break between doing the church and things like that and the mission. Uh, and yet I'm more encouraged and more excited 
uh, and feel more anointed and feel like I'm being used more and more into how God has made me. Terry Walling has been a big help in my life. Some of you all have had some Terry Walling time. And uh, he said, Philip, he said, you know, God is, keeps putting you in these leadership positions. You have to quit saying, oh, shucks, it's just me. You need to grab this thing and own it and recognize that this is what he's made you for and there's certain reasons about who you are. And, uh, and quit playing it down because what you're really doing is denying God all that he wants to do with you. Uh, first, and second of all, you're, you're probably, it's probably a way of, of hedging your bets in case you don't do well. So then you can say, well, oh, shucks, it was just me, right? <laughs> so anyway, I'm learning a lot about myself. I really am. And, and uh, uh, internal self-awareness is something, is something I've really been thinking about a lot lately. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty transparent. Uh, not with everybody all the time, because then it's like vomit all the time. But I mean, you know, I'm, I, I try to be touched with my brokenness, and there's a lot of it. And yet I do see some, some healing. And Claudia, my wife and I, after 34 years now, we are finally empty nesters. We're no longer raising kids. We have our, our youngest kid is in college now. So I, you still raise them a little bit, but not as much and from a distance and all that. And uh, so we have two kids still in college. Uh, so the first four kids are married and have kids, and I have a boy that just graduated from Baylor. He works in Dallas. I have another boy that's at TCU, Texas Christian University. It's not Christian. It's in Fort Worth. And then uh, my youngest daughter, she's at Oklahoma University. Uh, so it's kind of a new time for Claudia and me. She would love to have been here tonight. I would love to bring her, but we will come back. Um, what the uh, So tomorrow morning, I want to talk more about the mission and kind of some history there with me, with the mission. Uh, with things so that you all can kind of know more about this movement that you're a part of. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's, it's dynamic. It is, it, it is, um, uh, it has changed the categories of understanding how Anglicans do life together in North America and beyond. You mentioned India. We actually have an AMI, AMII, an Anglican mission in India, right? We've, we've disordained a guy that's in India and he's it's not connected with us at all, but anyway, so it may be that some people that you know might want to be connected with this guy. I've been to Sweden uh, because the Lutheran Church in Sweden is just like the Episcopal Church or the whatever you call it in Canada, the what do you, Anglican Church of Canada. And so these guys are thinking about wanting to plant churches. The problem with the Swedes and all the Scandinavians is they're so dadgum, tight-lipped, and straight-faced, they don't have any fun. Or if they do, you got to give them a lot of beer, and, and then, then they're going to break down or something. But, uh, but, but, you know, they're just kind of like, oh, you guys are going to plant church? You hardly talk. Uh, but anyway, God can do what God can do and all that. Uh, uh, honestly, kind of my visual is, is I, I really am a simple parish priest. I'm really pretty simple. I'm screwed up on the inside a lot. I'm a mess, and I tell my church that all the time. I say, well, you are a mess. We are all a mess. Uh, and I, but I say, you know what? God knows that, and God loves you. And give up the hope of ever having a better past, I tell them. <laughs> it's not going to happen. But have the hope of a better future. Because God, we, we talk about radical inclusivity and profound transformation. Radical, in, now the word inclusivity, I know that's a loaded word. And that's why I use that word. Especially the area where we are. Um, and then profound transformation. I see that's the other side of that loaded word. God takes us as we are, but by his grace, he doesn't leave us that way. So here's what we tell people. Everybody's welcome in that door. 
I want you all to have the most welcoming spirit in the world. And we have what I call the gauntlet of love. When you come in the front door of the church, you have to pass through like all these people that want to hug you and kiss you and everything else. It's the gauntlet of love. But anyway, they, they come through. They finally make it through that. And unless they turn around and leave. And then they, they come in. And then I tell them, you know, you already belong. We don't care. We do care what you believe and how you behave. But that's not what is your entrance requirement into this building. You belong and you're part of us because we're going to create a new community. And then what you believe and what you behave over time, that will that will, uh, um, uh, you know, take care of itself if you stay with us and all those kinds of things. And um, so we've had some profound transformation stories and experiences. We have healing services. We have prayer teams, you know, and the services on Sunday, all the kind of things about the Holy Spirit. Talk about the Holy Spirit all the time. And um, and people are really, really uh, seeing it in, in a balanced way that just kind of pushes the envelope for them. Because everybody in Dallas is so image management and so uptight about things sometimes. And they want to put on that, that outer image, but inside everything's just screwed up. And so I speak into that a lot. And I speak about my own screwed upness. To give them courage to talk about their own, give them permission to talk about their own, and um, so I guess a lot of who I am is, is over time going to be part of the mission, just the flavor of it, because leadership always sets tone and direction. Chuck was an amazing leader, still is in my book. I just look up to him so much, and what he did. Chuck has this incredible way of of seeing something down the road, across the bridge. Over the hill, somewhere about, you know, 50 miles away. And then he gets zeroed in on that vision and he doesn't let go of it. And it takes that kind of leader to get this thing off the ground. Sure, you make mistakes. And, and his generosity was incredible. He would raise money and just give it, give it, give it, give it. And at the end of the day, a lot of those people just kind of threw it right back in his face. No loyalty and just left or said all these things, none of which were true. None of it was true what they said. Not a single word. And you know what he did? I learned so much about leadership. He never responded. All these blogs that were written about him, all these things were by people who had different agendas, who wanted to take the mission and the money, try to get the money away and just do their own thing with it. And he would never respond back. Because he was trying to practice the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. He's not perfect. He made mistakes. I get all that. His mistakes is he trusted the wrong people at times. And, and, uh, uh, and then, you know, he would raise money for people. And his incredible generosity got churches planted all over the country. And uh, did some amazing things. So I, I just look up to his great, great leadership. And it's a blessing to follow him. And, uh, but I'm a different person. I'm not Chuck. So we all know that. And and uh, we had our first winter conference back in January, I think, January. And uh, all that went really well and just seemed to be a lot of encouragement and support. And, and so having people like Silas and Peter and Ed and, and just getting to know John and some others of you, Edmund and some other people, uh, it's so exciting to be here in Canada. And to, to just I get encouraged by you and hope you get encouraged by me uh, because we're in this we're in this thing together. Again, you're going to hear more about that in the morning, about some things about the mission. But I just kind of want to share you with my. It all started, remember, with when Mark Brown said to me, wherever you go, goes the kingdom of God. Wherever you go, goes the kingdom of God. And I haven't come anywhere near representing that in any perfect way or even in a great exhilarating way. But, but it does stay with me. And, and through the prayers and through the word and through the living word and, and just through experiences, you know, God has continued to form and shape me. And here's what I really believe about you all and I believe it about me. 
The best is yet to come. Amen? So, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, what, uh, what I'd like to do right now is close us in prayer. And um, uh, because you've had a long day and people kind of getting here and all that kind of thing, it'd be good to go home and get a good night's sleep. Um, but uh, come back tomorrow with, with uh, expecting to meet God. What God put in my heart when you were asking for a prayer this morning, John, is um, it's just, Lord, I, uh, any surprises you have for me, uh, a word or whatever like that, I just want to receive whatever. I just want to be wide open because I'm seeing this as a retreat for me as much as for you all, even though I'm giving some of the talks. Um, because I, that's why I was back here and the Lord said, have them take off the shoe. This is holy space. You all are making this holy space because you're open to the Holy Spirit. And and he's actually the one that makes it the Holy Space, of course. But it's just oh, oh, it's just kind of a symbolic way of saying this is a, a moment. This is a time for us uh, to come into his presence. So while we stand and um, I'm, I'm going to close this in prayer and then we're going to close and sing in the doxology together. Let's just take a moment of silence. Hear God and be present. We have no agenda. Nothing we have to do. Come, Holy Spirit, come. This is anointed, holy moment time that you meet with us and that we give to you. We need your love deeper. We know it's there. We need to know it and experience it. We need healing. Physical. Emotional. Spiritual. We need freedom. Freedom from the idols that we follow. Breaking the bondage. Growing in transformation. Dying to self. We need confession. As a way of expressing our love and confession, let us say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power forever and ever. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Ah.
the blessing of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be amongst you, remain with you always. Amen.